We're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, the end of the chapter, it's the second half uh, of it, and uh, this is David's recorded psalm, I guess, um, mourning, grief, eulogy of Jonathan and Saul, and uh, I want to look at that with you this morning. It's, uh, as I was preparing this, I thought, it, it, what a strange message for a Sunday morning. I think going through... Uh, First and Second Samuel brings us to some things that you would not typically think you'd preach on Sunday morning. Of course, today uh, we, with the weather and so on, I, I don't believe we have any unsaved here with us today. But you know, of course, that's always a chance. Uh, but um, you just on Sunday morning, you don't typically hear something preached about grief. And that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. And really, um, because of the way that I order messages uh, and what I am trying to do in preaching through a book of the Bible, um, I know that I know that there's debate and controversy among pastors about how much you should just let God lead you to what to preach. But I think when you're preaching Passage by passage, you are letting God lead you. What to preach, God certainly is dictating. This is the next passage. This is what we're to preach. And um, so I'm going to preach to you this morning on grieving like a Christian. Grieving like a Christian. I understand that David was not technically a Christian since Christians came after Christ and were disciples of his. And yet, who would deny that David was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and spoke of Christ prophetically as well. And so David teaches us here, though I don't think that's the point of this passage, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. So uh, let's stand together and we'll read 2 Samuel 1, beginning in verse 17, reading to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle, O Jonathan, thou was slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen? 
and the weapons of war perished. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we praise and thank you that you give us passages like this, that you open to us the grieving heart of one of your servants and let us see it, observe it as he grieves so that we might also know how to deal with grief when it's our turn. I pray that none of us would shy away from this Christian exercise, but that we would also recognize our own mortality and the importance of the connections and relationships that you've given to us in life. And that we would honor those appropriately with an appropriate kind of grieving. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I open up the word to your people, that you would guide and direct and teach me and instruct me so that I can be a help to our church as well. And I pray that you would comfort us in all of our grief, in all of our sorrows, and that we would look to you for comfort, but that we would also know how to pour our heart out to you in pain. We ask that you do all these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You can be seated. When Jerusalem fell to Rome in 70 AD, uh, the survivors fled to join a group of rebels on Masada. Now, if you ever visit Israel, Masada is an absolute necessity to visit. You need to see it for a number of different reasons. Um, it is a key place there. It's, I can't really explain it to you. It's a sacred place for sure, even though it's not really mentioned in the Bible. It's possible it's been suggested that it was one of the, when David referred to God being his high tower, that he was thinking of Masada. Certainly the region of Masada is the wilderness of Judea is a place that David spent a lot of time when he was running from King Saul. Uh, and so it's very possible that he would have uh, stayed up there. Masada is probably the most naturally defensible place that you could ever see. It sits 1,400 feet above sea level. It's just uh, what just uh, west of the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet below sea level. And so it's a 2,800-foot climb from the Dead Sea up to there, and um, it's very high. The ruins at Masada uh, today, you can still see um, the different companies of the camp of the Romans uh, that were camped around and that put in a, um, a siege line. You can still see the siege wall um, there still intact around Masada. Um, and uh, of course, Herod had uh, one of his temples, uh, and not temples, one of his <laughs> palaces. He had about a dozen palaces around Israel and uh, one of them on top of Masada, a really amazing, elaborate, um, luxurious palace. It was, I guess it paid to be a king uh, when you were uh, King Herod. And uh, he is called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. 
and built really, I mean, it's amazing that 2,000 years later, uh, his palace, many of the parts of his palace still largely intact up on top of Masada. Um, and uh, it's, he provided for supply of water so that he could store and supply 200,000 gallons of water up there on this high plateau. And 967 Israelites gathered there uh, after Rome destroyed the t- Herod's temple in Jerusalem and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And for nearly two years, the Romans could not penetrate that fortress, could not get to the Jews who were there. And then the, Jew, the Romans began to build a siege ramp up to the city. They used Jewish slaves to do it. Uh, you know, there's debate about why and so on. Of course, the suggestion is that the Jews wouldn't kill their own people. But if you knew the conditions that those Jewish slaves were living under, killing them would not be um, a problem, really. Um, perhaps that's the reason. Didn't matter because they just kept bringing in more and building with them, and they'd work them until they died anyway. And they eventually took about seven months for them to build that siege wall. And when they finally were able to break through and breach the city, the, the gates of Masada, breach the wall, and they came in, and they found all 967 dead, except for two women and five children who had managed to sneak away and hide and escape. Josephus tells the story that the, uh, the leader of the 967 persuaded, and it took a while, when he first argued it, uh, the men refused, but he kept persisting and arguing it and persuaded the men that they should cast lots and choose out 10 men who would kill all the others. And each man on Masada was assigned to kill his own wife and his own children, lest they fall into the hands of the Romans a fate worse than death. And so after the men had killed all of their families, ten men were chosen by a lot to kill all the other men. And then lots were cast again, and one man was chosen to kill the other nine. And then that one man killed himself. There is, of course, debate and archaeologists and historians debate how much of that is true and so on. But the point is that Masada is for the modern day Jew a sacred place. I struggle to understand why a place of such tragic defeat 
would be sacred. Our Jewish tour guide took us up there. He said that he used to be called Masada Mark because he took tours several times a day up to Masada in his early years of touring, taking tours through Israel. But he explained all of these things. And then he said to us, think of Masada the way you think of Pearl Harbor, the way you think of the World Trade Center's 9-11. Think of Masada as, remember the Alamo. It's a place of defeat, a place of tragedy, and yet a place that stirs us to patriotism, love of country, loyalty to the place where God has given us. When the Israeli defense forces complete their training, they're taken to the top of Masada, where the troops, as part of their graduation ceremony, shout, Masada shall not fall again. If you can grasp the importance of Masada to the Jewish mind, then you can understand what David is doing here at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 1. And why David would write such a eulogy for Saul and for Jonathan when they died at Mount Gilboa. The 17th verse tells us that David lamented with this lamentation. And according to the 18th verse, David required all the warriors in his nation as part of their training to learn this poem. The verse says, look at it, that David bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Okay, so, and you notice that part of that is italicized, the use of the bow. He bade them teach the children of Judah the bow. Now the commentaries all suggest that the title of this eulogy is the bow. And that it's named that in honor of Jonathan's gift to David. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that Jonathan gave him his robe and his everything, including his bow. And clearly Jonathan was a warrior with a bow. He took, you remember when he revealed his father's face towards David, he took a young man out into the field and he shot the bow out in that field. Like this was a common thing with Jonathan. And here in chapter, in, in this passage in verse 22, David refers again to the bow of Jonathan. So Jonathan was a valiant man with a bow. And David names the eulogy for him and he bade this to be a part of the ceremony in training warriors in the use of the bow that they were also to learn this eulogy. They were to learn this as sort of a slogan. Masada shall not fall again. Remember the Alamo. That same kind of thing. This was to be a rallying cry for troops. <clears throat> As soldiers learned the use of the bow, their commanders chanted this psalm to them. 
recited it to them. They learned it and they recited it themselves. In fact, uh, as I said, the title, I think there's I think there's good reason to think that this is called the bow that David is calling it that. And what we find here is something sacred, sacred to the people of Israel. And God is graciously giving us insight, letting us look into the heart of a man as he grieves. A man, not grieving like a woman, but grieving. And sometimes I think in our austerity here, we are ashamed in our culture to grieve. We have more trouble, I think, with grieving than we do with just about any other emotion. We're afraid of it. We're shy about it. We don't want people to see it. We don't want people to know. We conceal it. We don't know how to grieve. And so God is giving us insight here, letting us see the way a man grieved, what he did, what he said, what it's about here. We saw an outpouring of grief already in verses 11 and 12 of chapter one, where David and his men just when they when it was confirmed that Saul was dead, the first thing that they did, even before David put the Amalekite to death, he dropped everything and he grieved. That was appropriate for him to do. Now we see something more sustained. Not impulsive, not spontaneous, but intentional here. What David is doing. He goes back and he laments their passing and leads Israel to do the same. I could say a lot about mourning and grieving. Like I said, these are things that we're not very good at in our culture. We really are not. We prefer some other way of coping with the loss of a loved one. It's painful, and we try to avoid pain, and especially displays of it in front of other people. When people see it, we're embarrassed and ashamed of that. We feel vulnerable. We feel exposed. And so we don't like to do it. You know, we're practical people. We're pragmatic Um, There doesn't seem to be a lot of purpose in extended periods of grief. And so we wind up pushing it aside, ignoring the pain, numbing ourselves to it. The result is not pretty. Far too many people in our culture today resort to other ways, find other ways of dealing with their grief that are harmful to themselves. Now I'd say this, it doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. I know of ladies, well, I mean, my mother-in-law is one who lost her husband a few years ago. And I believe that the wound, the, the hurt, the grief of that is as fresh in her mind as anything she's ever experienced. She still speaks of it, still gets very emotional about it. And we should not look at that as if there's something wrong with this. No, in fact, I would argue that there's something very right about this. We shouldn't think that people will just get over it. 
<clears throat> we shouldn't be too proud, too practical, too ignorant to deal with sorrow the way God intended. And so we're blessed to have a passage like this to see the way that David dealt with his own grief. Now, let me just say this to you. This is not a manual, not a textbook, not a how-to, self-help kind of book on how to deal with grief. David doesn't do what he's doing here. He doesn't say what he's saying here in order to help you know how to grieve. He's not doing this as an example. David is grieving and God records it for you. God lets you see what grief looks like. And to show it to you in an honorable light. As David grieves here, none of us are embarrassed for him. None of us feel that he's gone over the top, that he should just let it go, that he should maybe even be a little happy because after all, Saul, his enemy, is dead now. We see that this is right, that this is good, that this is honorable. This is a blessing that we can see this in Scripture. David's purpose is to grieve over the death of Jonathan and Saul. That's it. He's not doing this to give some kind of extra biblical message here. He does this. He grieves right here in front of all the nation of Israel, and it's recorded for all of history. What can we learn from it? Again, The point is not to teach us about grief. The point is simply to grieve. That's what David does. He grieves. We can learn from this. But what we're doing is we're seeing David as he grieves. David had two purposes for grieving this way, and I want to draw your attention to both of them. His grief is offered as, first of all, a memorial to Saul and Jonathan, and then secondly, as a tribute to them, a memorial and a tribute. Let's look at those two things. First, we see grief here as a memorial. David's grief here is intentional. It's, it's a monument in Scripture to Saul and Jonathan that's built with the words of David. His immediate response to the tragic news was an outpouring of grief. You can just imagine because most of us have been there at one time or another, the flood of tears of grief. That first outburst would have been spontaneous, informal, not not well thought out but just a passionate outburst from David, a sorrow over the death of Saul and Jonathan. That's part of grief. That initial overwhelming response. I'll never forget the day that I heard the news of the passing of Pastor Short. And it's The closest thing I have to compare to this, thankfully, so far, I haven't had a tragic death in my own family. 
My grandparents passed away in their 90s. We were prepared for that. It's different. But with Pastor Short, I'll never forget it. We were over next door. There were a group of us gathered. We were getting ready to go pass out flyers for some special meetings that we were having. And as we were gathered there in the hall, the phone rang and someone said, your wife's on the phone. And I went down to my office to take it. In fact, I think the person said, go down to your office and said she asked if you would go down to your office. And I went down to my office and I took the phone call and my wife gave me the news that Pastor Short was lost at sea. And I remember that overwhelming feeling, the initial sense that this was, this is hard. I don't know. How do you, how do you even describe that? What you feel in that moment? There's nothing profound about it at all. I hung up the phone and I knew I had to walk out in the hallway and I had to tell the 15 or 20 people who were gathered in that hallway that Pastor Short was lost at sea. And I knew that that was going to be very painful for everybody there and it was hard for me to say so to the people. Honestly, there's an hour or two that I don't remember what happened. I know that I told everybody, I know that there was much weeping and sorrow and praying. And we prayed there and prayed that somehow he would be found, that he would be alive somehow. We sent everybody home and then I called around and asked the deacons if they would come over to the church I this is where I don't remember exactly what I did, but the deacons came and we sat in Pastor Short's office and we wept and we prayed and we cried out to the Lord. And and then we discussed what steps we needed to be prepared for right away to make sure that the church was cared for. And we got the Constitution out and looked at that and then dismissed everyone and by this time it was around 10 o'clock at night and I drove over to the house where Pastor Short's parents, his mom and dad lived and I sat with them as they poured out their grief and his mother's sorrow at not being able even to say goodbye to her son. It was overwhelming and I sat with them for a couple of hours And then I went home, and as far as I remember, I had not been able to see my wife from the time we got that call because of dealing with those things. And and then we cried together, and then I went to bed that night, and the next morning I was covering Pastor Short, had a paper route, and I was covering his route for him, and I had to get up at 3.30 in the morning to go and do that. And I pulled out of my house, we lived over here on 21st, just off Harrison, and turned around the corner and I went down the hill, you know, from 20th Street down Harrison. And my eyes were just flooded with tears. I couldn't see the road. I pulled off to the side of the road and sat and sobbed and cried for 20 minutes, probably, I think, until I had no more tears to shed there. And that was on a Friday. And then uh, Sunday came and I knew that I had to stand and preach to the church and I didn't know what I should preach on. And I remember coming in 
to the basement downstairs and seeing one of our faithful men. He looked at me and I looked at him and I turned away and went back to my office to cry. And uh, I'll never forget that service that day. The songs that we sang, I think that uh, the choir sang when God is near. And I preached that day about the love of God. I read from Romans chapter eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I, honestly, I don't know how we got through that Sunday morning service. And the grief was so heavy and intense for all of us. But I will say that that Sunday morning, I think, is an example of what we see here with David. Because it was a more disciplined, a more formal, a more thoughtful kind of grieving. And then, of course, we had the funeral for Pastor Short. These are the things that we are called upon to do that are part of being in a relationship, being a part of the family, if you will. That there will be tragedies. There will be grief. There will be sorrow. And in those times, we have before us the opportunity to honor our God to remember the life and the love that we shared with that person and to give, to offer a tribute to them. There will be moments of agonizing sorrow and pain where the tears burst forth. But also there will be times for reflection, times to write down our grief and our pain and to offer it up to God. There is a place for us to be intentional with our grief as David was. David commanded that these words be taught to his soldiers. He wanted them to remember what the Philistines did to Israel's king. I think this is wonderful to think about this. David was always sure of who the enemy was. There was never any doubt, never any question in his mind who the enemy was. The Philistines were the enemy. Listen, we're not exactly fighting the Philistines here, not in the same way that we are in a world filled with Philistines. Make no mistake about it. But when you die, the Bible says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 
Remember that every person, every person who dies was assaulted by the enemy. And so there is a rightness in speaking against the the things that we say and that we learn, that we say in response to the enemy, death, a right for us to do. Yes, there was bad blood between David and Saul, not by David's choosing, but by Saul's. And yet David knows that Saul, ultimately Saul is not the enemy. And that what was done to Saul was done to Israel and was done to Israel's God as well. And so David wants to reinforce the message to make sure that they never forget. This was their battle cry, their remembrance of Saul. So this is another thing that I want you to note here, that what David wrote here as a remembrance is something that we remember. And he wrote it so that it would be remembered, so that the grief would not be forgotten. Grief itself is a memorial. It is sacred. We remember the love that we shared with that person. The wonderful memories we have of that person. The vacancy that can never be filled. And it never can be. The people, the loved ones that God takes away from you. Their place is never filled. But we should also remember our grief. This is what David did in assigning this lament to his troops in training, to be learned by his troops. But it fits also with the things David expresses in the poem itself. Because one of the things David memorializes here is the shame of this defeat. Now, I want you to notice what he says beginning in verse 19. The beauty, that is the glory. The the literal meaning there, the beauty, is the prince. The beauty, the the prince of Israel, who was the glory, the the physical, the, the visible glory of Israel, was the prince, the king. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. David visualizes Here, the gloating, the celebration on the streets of Gath and Ashkelon, the enemies of God celebrating the triumph of their God over Jehovah, over Yahweh. He knows that this will be seen as a religious victory by the Philistines. And he's sorry for it. He does not want his people, Israel, to forget that. 
But he also curses Mount Gilboa. Something, by the way, that the modern Jew has not forgotten. The curse on Mount Gilboa. And that's the point. Just as we say of 9-11, never forget. It's the reason why not since September in the past 20 years. Uh, I have not remembered. I have not forgotten to remember. The tragedy of that day and the tragedy for our church of the passing of our pastor. But that's the point. Greek, grief serves as a wonderful motivation for us, especially when it comes to stirring up the people against the enemy. It's helpful for us to remember what a relentless enemy we have in the devil. And in death, his favorite tool, his favorite weapon against us to remember that. It stirs us to pray more fervently for each other in our hour of affliction and grief and pain and sorrow. This stirs us to bear one another's burdens. It is wonderful motivation. And that's why David memorialized Saul and Jonathan this way. He takes note of the shame in their death and makes a monument of it, a memorial of it. To remind us also, and we are being reminded even now, this morning, we're being reminded of these things. We're seeing David's recorded grief here, and we're remembering that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, who wants to bring us to grief, who wants to shame us and embarrass us, lest we let our guard down. As you prepare with the bow, Remember this song. But then I want you to see also grief as a tribute. Because here in this psalm, David marks the character of Saul and Jonathan. And in fact, this is the central theme, the central point of the eulogy. Now you will notice that verse 19 says, How are the mighty fallen? And then verse 25 says, how are the mighty fallen? And then verse 27, how are the mighty fallen? So clearly the, the poet here, the psalmist, has a structured outline. He, he, he bookends it with this phrase, how are the mighty fallen? And then in the center of that, when you see that kind of thing in these, uh, in these narratives, Always look to the center because there you'll see what the point is. And so in the center of this, I want you to notice in verse 22 and verse 23, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. So this is what David is working towards. This is the climax of his tribute to Saul and Jonathan is to point out what they are praiseworthy of. What, what makes them praiseworthy, I should say. David is pointing out the many Philistines that Saul and Jonathan killed in the heat of battle before they died. He is imagining them 
with the field littered with the bodies of Philistines all around them. And by the way, for the faint at heart, this is a good thing. David is saying this is a good thing. Believers, Christians, killing Philistines is a Christian duty. All right, let's don't shy away from it. This is what we are called to do. Kill Philistines. All right. Uh, So David is praising them, their character when they are driven from the battlefield. Dying. Still slaying, still killing, still battling, still fighting till they die. This is a good thing. He praises their courage in battle. This takes on even more meaning when you consider the animosity between Saul and David. Because Saul was hunting David. All the time hunting David. Relentlessly hunting David. And yet, David can still see the courage of this man in battle. Saul is David's king and countryman. And David recognizes his valor. But even more so, David remembers what a great man, what a great friend Jonathan was. Notice, look at again at verse 22 and 23. And I want you to notice how this is structured. Because we see again a little bookend with a central point here. We see the courage First of all, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. There we see the courage of Saul and Jonathan. And then I want you to skip down and I want you to see they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Again, David means to mark the courage of of Saul and Jonathan. Courage in killing the Philistines, courage in the face of battle, in the heat of battle. And in the middle of that, David marks their character. Notice what he says. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death, they were not divided. Neither one of them abandoned the other. Neither one. Whatever problem there had been between Saul and Jonathan, they were still loyal to each other. Saul insulted Jonathan and threw his spear at him. Yet they died side by side. In other words, David here is praising what is praiseworthy. But especially David marked the faithful love of Jonathan. If verses 22 and 23 give us the central point, the verses after that bring us to the climax of this passage, of this tribute. We see, of course, Jonathan's faithfulness to his own father. But David especially marks Jonathan's love for himself. We pointed out several times Jonathan's joy 
in laying aside his own ambitions in order to make David great. It's, it's hard for us to comprehend it. The way that, the way that Jonathan looked at David and the last thing that Jonathan said to David when he visited him in the wilderness of Judea, the last thing he said to him was that you're going to be king. God is going to make you king and I'm going to be second in command to you. Can you imagine in this day of ambition and anything less than a beta male ever rejoicing that I get to be second string Jonathan was no beta male. In fact, one of the things that Jonathan loved about David, before David killed Goliath, you'll remember that Jonathan and his armor bearer went head to head with a garrison of the Philistines, just those two, and assaulted them. Jonathan was not androgynous, as they say, you know, these days. Uh, Jonathan was not neutered. Not in any way. That's what attracted him to David. But Jonathan was an extraordinary man. Laying aside his own ambition. His own desires. What would have been a very nice life. Because when you're the king, you've got the best of everything. In order to defer to God's choice in David. And David takes a moment to reflect on the special connection that he shared with Jonathan. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Notice, by the way, notice that throughout this eulogy, David uses direct address over and over again. Instructions to the Philistines in verse 20. Instructions to Mount Gilboa in verse 21. Instructions to the daughters of Israel in verse 24. Instructions to Jonathan. He speaks to Jonathan in verse 25 and 26. Uh, That also tells you what the central point was in verses uh, 22 and 23, where David's tribute to Jonathan and Saul and their character and their honor and their praiseworthiness is clearly the central point here because he moves away from this direct address in order to speak of them, of these two men. But now we come to the climax of the poem in verses 25 and 26. David tells the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. He assigns them to that duty while David himself gives his attention to Jonathan, his friend. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Now, men of corrupt minds have taken this kind of thing and tried to make it into something perverse, as if that's the only way it could possibly be understood. 
But David pointed out here something that I think every man knows. God blesses men with close friends who are men. Brotherhood, fraternity is an important part of us fulfilling our calling in life. We accomplish more when we work together with our brothers in arms. It is an invaluable thing for a man to have other men who are committed to his well-being and well-doing, who are helping him, who are like iron, sharpening iron for him. There's nothing sick or twisted or perverse about this kind of thing. We as men value friendship, brotherhood that sharpens us, men who will stand by us, men to ride the river with. And David is rejoicing in this friend of his, in Jonathan, as he grieves the loss of such a friend. You wonder what might have been, I wonder what might have been had Jonathan survived, had David become king, and Jonathan stood by his side. You wonder if there would have been a Bathsheba, if there was a Jonathan at his side. You wonder if David would have made some of the foolish errors and blunders that he made. Remember, Jonathan suggested to David that David would reign in Israel and that Jonathan would be his second in command. If David had such a loyal, faithful friend by his side, you wonder if there would have been the Joab problem, the Absalom problem for David. It doesn't matter, of course, because we know what happened here. But clearly David feels the loss of this friend in his very bones, and he never replaced him. I am distressed for thee, my brother, Jonathan. How are the mighty fallen? David repeats three times in the passage. And you know that when there's a repetition in these narratives, that this is for emphasis, to stress this. Israel lost a mighty champion, a valiant king. All his faults and all his follies Aside, David still gives a true account of the value of King Saul. It's easy for us to despise Saul, to look down on him. But David does no such thing here. He's not flattering. There's nothing to flatter. No value in flattering. David is right to mourn these champions. Saul and Jonathan. And we can learn from his grieving. But remember that David is not setting up a teachable moment right here. He grieves, plain and simple. He mourns. He feels the loss. He he writes a beautiful eulogy for these men. He makes it part of the military training moving into the future for these men. He sets it for a memorial He writes this tribute for his friend. He wants Israel to remember, to honor, to emulate Saul and Jonathan in their valiance for Israel. 
That really is the point of the passage. That David wants Israel to remember. That David wants Israel to emulate these men to be valiant warriors. As I said, this isn't what we're used to hearing on a Sunday morning. But that's what David is writing about right here. Not trying to impress anyone with his poem. Not trying to teach us how to mourn. But just a man who grieves like he just lost his best friend. Because he did. But of course, we can learn from this. And we should. Right? And here are a couple things that I want to point out to you. Number one, grief is important. Grief is important. By far the most structured book in the Bible. And this is, this is interesting to me. Because we have, you know, the, there are the people, the super structured people in the world, right? That, that like everything to be just so. And there are also the helter-skelter people in the world where everything is just so, if you know what pile, where they put it, right? And there's this conflict between, you know, the, the messy marcies of the world and the ones that like to have everything, you know, in its place and labeled, right? <clears throat> and we have books in the Bible that give kind of a sense of helter-skelter, right? I would say, you know, perhaps the book of Proverbs is one such book. Anyone who tries to structure it and find structure in it, good luck with that, uh, because it looks more like a grab bag of great Proverbs uh, there. But the most structured, by far the most structured book in the entire Bible is the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Every chapter is intensely structured. The structure goes down all the way to the base with that book. And I find that interesting because of what Lamentations is. It's a book of grief, a book of mourning, a book of sorrow. We should pay attention to what God is doing here. It tells us not to pass over grief. Don't try to put it behind you. There's a sense in which we will get over it. Time dulls the pain of grief and sorrow. Takes away the intensity, the sting of it. But there is also a sense in which we should never get over it. Not if it's someone you loved. Not if it's someone God put in your life. Dale Davis includes several quotes that I found helpful in his commentary on this passage. Focused on the love between Jonathan and David. He quoted Matthew Henry who said, The more we love, the more we grieve. Davis said, Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. And he said, Greater love greater grief. Remember that. Grief is important. It is part of navigating this life. 
Don't overlook it. Don't wish it would go away. I actually think in many cases that the pain is more acute the more we fight it. We'll face it. You will face it. We'll all face it. And when we do, we should remember that as painful as it is to grieve and mourn the loss of a friend, it means that you loved and that you were loved. It means that God blessed you with friendship, companionship, brotherhood, relationships. It's hard to be grateful for the pain of sorrow when you're in the midst of sorrow. And I don't mean to be trite when I say that you should be grateful for it. But one of the things that stands out to me in this passage of David's is the gratitude that he expresses for Saul and Jonathan and for their memory. And I say that the reason we give thanks to the Lord before we eat is because everything tastes better when we give thanks for it. And that's true even when it comes to sorrow and grief and pain. It's hard to give thanks, but we ought to give thanks. <clears throat> the second thing I want to point out to you is that grief is painful. It is. It's, can I say it this way? It's a sweet sorrow. It's a painful joy. It's hard for us to take that seatbelt and get it to buckle. But it really is. <clears throat> I don't mean to take anything away from the grief that we experience. David said, I am distressed for thee. We see his pain all through the passage. We don't have to be creative with this to make it painful. All of us can imagine the pain of loss. Most of us will face it if we have not already. That's why it's a blessing for us to consider David's pain here. It's hard, hurts, but it isn't all bad. Certainly as much as we might not want others to see that pain, we might wish to hide it. We still know it's there. It's there. Can't escape it. And that's part, actually, of the healing process here. I don't say to embrace the pain. But I do say to remember to give God what he wants in the midst of that. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not exempt himself from this pain. What does the Bible say? I hope I don't mispronounce this because I'm thinking of one verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, right? At the grave of Lazarus, 
The Bible simply tells us Jesus wept. Why did he weep? People want to know. Why did he weep? He knew everything. He knew he was about to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. So why did he weep? Because weeping is appropriate when you're standing at a grave. Weeping is the right thing to feel, to do when you're there. And the third thing I want to point out to you is that grief is honorable. It is truly a Christian activity. David set up this psalm for a memorial, a theme for his armies as they trained with the bow. We have our own Masada, our own Alamo, our own Pearl Harbor as Christians. We do. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. The tragedy that rallies us. The tragedy that we call our glory. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The Philistines believed that the death of Saul and Jonathan was their triumph. Now, I won't mention the irony of the fact that killing Saul and Jonathan gave rise to King David, and that was not the Philistines' triumph right there. But the Philistines at Calvary believed that they had killed the king of glory. But their victory was their defeat because his death was his triumph over them. Jesus rose from the dead and triumphed over death by his death on the cross. We string our bows to the tune of Christ crucified. Though it is folly to the world, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and of salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yes, the instrument of torture and death, the, the torture and death of our Lord Jesus Christ has become our salvation. It is the cross then that comforts us. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. We memorialize that grief at the Lord's Supper where he commanded us to remember his death and show it until he comes. And it's for this reason that even when we grieve, we do not grieve as those who are lost. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him So then, let's learn to grieve like Christians. Marking the way God blessed us 
through that relationship, pouring out our gratitude in our songs, in our remembrances, and finding comfort in our crucified Lord who has triumphed in his death.